listen, you're all very welcome to the 42.e uh, Rugby Show Live. Thanks a million for joining us. It's good to be in Cork and finally confirm that the 42.e is indeed biased towards Cork. Uh, it's great to be down here. How are you all getting on? Yeah. Lovely job. Well, look, uh, I won't waste any of your time. Let's get our guests on. The first man I'm going to bring to the stage. I was actually scrolling through uh, Rugby Reddit and it was described as the biggest Lions casualty of all. Murray Kinsler taking a break until the new year. A real blow to the November tests. Uh, somebody then said, who is Murray Kinsler? I think it was an Englishman. Uh, to, to which uh, a person replied, you could say Murray Kinsler is the Mia Khalifa of the sports journalism world or that Mia Khalifa is the Murray Kinsler of the porn industry. Uh, <laughs> definitely a few lads there familiar with Miss Khalifa's work. Uh, <laughs> in April 2014, somebody on the Monster Rugby Fans Forum said this man was destined for bigger and better things. Uh, nope, he's still here. Will you please welcome Murray Kinsler? <laughs> All right, Mozza. Thanks, Gab. Thank you very much. He always gives me the weirdest introductions, but... <laughs> they, they somehow always... <laughs> They I had a broken nose. I had a broken nose. You're lucky you made it past the bouncers looking. I mean, like, yeah. good lord. Was that Tomas Valeri who did that to you? It was a cork man. I don't know, actually know who it was. He could be From Bandon. Is there any Bandon people here? No? <laughs> well, they kicked people in the face. That was a haunting <laughs> silence. The <laughs> yeah. famous Thorman Hush. Let's get our, uh, our main guest on. Uh, well, Michal Merhartig describes this man as son of the great Sean Leary. Some RT viewers might better know him as Thor, son of Odin. Uh, <laughs> look, is... <laughs> <laughs> He is a Grand Slam winner. More importantly, he's won two European Cups with Monster. Uh, is he human? Is he dancer? Well, based on his dancing skills, he's probably human. It's Tommaso Leary. Hey, Tommaso. I'm aware I'm putting myself at risk of a rinsing after the last time you sat down next to me. How are things? Yeah, great. Good to be here. We, I suppose there's probably only one place to start, really, is there? Yeah. Um, I, don't, I don't know what I was thinking, really. <laughs> <laughs> I've, uh, I've won a couple of Hining Cups, a Grand Slam, and I learned medal, and all anyone wants to talk about is fucking dancing. Right? So, <laughs> so it's, my, it's my own fault. <laughs> uh, what did you make of... The final was this weekend, wasn't it? Yeah, I was up at it. It was phenomenal. Like, it was fa fascinating stuff. Um, yeah, Jay Carter won it. He's, he's probably the best dancer, to be fair. Um, Anna Geary, obviously. Cork Jay, girl, yeah. and... Robbed. Uh, yeah, she was probably the best on the night, like, but era. we won't lose too much sleep over it. You're only good as your last dance, I suppose. Yeah. I, like, you, there was, there was a, I, I was just doing a little bit of research and I found uh, an interview you did with RT Entertainment. You said that um, yourself and your, uh, your partner, uh, Julia, you knew you were going to get knocked out early, that's what you were saying to them, yeah. but also that uh, <laughs> you said we were never going to win it. I was just gutted I didn't get to lift her. Yeah. Oh. Well, like, if you lift a, a girl, it looks impressive, like, whereas if you're, if you're uh, just strutting around the dance floor, because um, I think there's half of the dances you're not allowed to lift, you get dot marks, like, so, um, whereas you control a girl over your, your shoulders and twist her around, it looks good, like, so, <laughs> you would have gotten extra marks for something very easy, so, yeah, just got I didn't get to lift her. <laughs> well, I, I was <laughs> probably exaggerating, I didn't really care, like, but... <laughs> Yeah, to tell would, them something. Yeah, would have got extra marks. Maybe well, there's plenty of space. We can sort something out later. Maybe if anyone wants to put their hands up. Uh, <laughs> the um, the overall experience for you, Tomas, like good crack, I suppose. Of dancing. Well, um, yeah, yeah, dancing no, with like, the stars, like. Oh yeah, they were amazing, big stars. Um, <laughs> I um, you know, I, I I did enjoy it. Like the professional dancer I was with, um, an Italian girl, like she was cool, uh, very relaxed, laid back. Um, Probably spent a bit too much time chatting and having coffee um, yeah. rather than dancing, so that's probably where we went wrong. 
Fair enough. Well, last time we had you was up in Dublin and we left you off with the dancing stuff. Felt like more comfortable on yeah. home soil. But I did have to ask you as well about uh, your former teammate who um, you, were, you seemed to be almost trying to recruit uh, for the Cork Curlers. And talking, of course, about Nemanja Nadolo. Yeah. You've, got a, you've got the jersey on him. Uh, he said he wanted to be the third Fijian uh, Corkman. A bit cruel there on Isaki, I felt. Uh, he said, Satanta, Sean Ogan, <laughs> There's probably another hot bean brother looking at that going, oh, forgotten. I, 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 you know, a he said that, not me. Like, no, not you, yeah, yeah, yeah. His knowledge of car curling wouldn't be up there with, with mine, so it was a simple mistake. He didn't mean to insult anybody, so I'll pass, I'll pass on uh, your, your comments, though, and see what he's to say. Yeah, yeah, no problem. I'm sure if we can get him up here, it'd be great. Like, would he, did you ever, when you were over there in France, like, would you have been poking the ball around, or was there anybody to even play with like I forgot my Harleys so um, <laughs> no um, there was an Irish bar which obviously we were in once or twice and I think a couple of lads had Harleys there but I never got around to to taking them out and having a having a puck with with the Manny so um, but like he was keen to during the summer during the, the autumn internationals when they came over to hook up but um, I was away so um would have to hopefully do it another date maybe down in down in <laughs> down in Japan um Next year at the World Cup, I might pop down and bring the Hurleys and we can make a TV program out of it if you want. Right. <laughs> he actually does follow it, though. I think I was reading an interview he did with um, Key and Tracy ahead of the November Internationals, and it was going to be himself on Darren Sweetnam. And he was saying, yeah, I believe uh, Darren used to play for the Cork Hurleys. So it's going to be a tough test. Like he, and he said he followed Dublin throughout the, the football championship as well. Yeah, you actually did sort of cultivate an interest in him. No, he, like he, he does follow it. Like... Um, Obviously, I was chatting about, I suppose, local Irish sport and stuff when it came up, and then he saw one or two of the games on Sky, and um, he used to fl when he used to flick it on and he used to see it on Sky, he'd, he'd sit down and watch it no matter who was playing, but obviously he's a Cork J fan now, and he's, as you said, he got kind of into the football too, so, and obviously playing against Munster, uh, he, he probably heard that Sweetnam was uh, ex-Cork ex hurler, and um, he got chatting to Sweets after the game, and I was chatting to Sweets, and Sweets was very impressed with him. He was uh, such a genuine guy, and um, and Daddy knew Sweets was delighted. He knew him like not a man knew about <laughs> not a, not a knew about his hurling like because um, like, Sweets is a great kid. Like I sat next to him before I, I went to France, and you know for a guy who's achieved all he has, like he's he's such a down to earth guy. Like he's played obviously hurling in Ireland semi final for Cork. He's uh, went on to play at Munster with Ireland. He was an Irish hockey international in school as well. Like he's just a freak in terms of uh, his sporting ability and his physique. Um, but like even still, he still has doubts about how good he is. And um, to have Nemanja Nandola, even though his name would have, would have really like, delighted him, like he's still like almost like a kid. So it's great to see him back in the mix out this weekend. Um, obviously with, with, with the two boys, fitness doubts, I think he'll come in if, if either of them is injured. So hopefully it'd be great to see him back on, on the pitch. And, Get back in the Munster jersey. Absolutely. Now, last time you joined us, you had a couple of uh, choice words for England, and yeah. ultimately <laughs> right. you were vindicated. Yeah. <laughs> what did you make of it? Yeah, I was delighted. Um, Understandably, as well. Yeah. Um, I, I just think, um, I, like I said, I thought they were like this was pre Wales or Scotland. It was pre Wales, and we were ch chatting about England too, and I just felt that they were massively overrated in terms of. You know what they've achieved. Obviously, they had a, a pretty long winning run, but I just the style which they play, and I guess the teams they've beaten. I felt that it didn't uh, justify, you know, their their claims for you know being world being World Cup um, 
uh, I suppose, contenders and um, being one of the best teams in the world, I felt the style that they play is, is very one-dimensional. It's about physically dominating a team and if you want to go to a World Cup and beat four or five of the top teams in the world, you just can't physically dominate teams and rely on that. And you see, you know, by, by, by how they've played, um, their pack has been pretty average and then their back play has been really, really, really poor in terms of, um, you know, almost very lateral across the pitch. Um, like their passing skills are very, very poor. Their kicking game is, is, is the kick chase is non-existent. So, um, like, and we, we spoke pre, 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 pre the Welsh game that if you were picking a team based on paper, I know you don't do that, but that maybe Itoji and Onfarrell would be the only two in the English squad who'd even be in contention for an Irish place. And that kind of illustrates where Irish rugby is versus English rugby. And I think they've got big problems. Murray, is there a sting in the English tail for next year? I mean, it's easy to write them off based on three consecutive defeats and all that, and they've broken some unwanted records, but you presume they're going to get their act together in time for the World Cup. Maybe not quite to the extent that they thought they might this year, but they'll be there or thereabouts, will they? Yeah, they've got big questions to ask in terms of who's their best 10, who's their seven going forward. Pretty important things that they need to solve in, in the next year, and I don't think you want to have those big questions this close to the tournament. There's obviously still tests to, to fix that. But you look at Ireland, everything seems to be laid out really nicely. The young guys have been introduced. They're only going to get better in the next year. Um, and they've won a Grand Slam as well. So the confidence is going to roll through, hopefully, into the provinces now this weekend. Absolutely. Well, uh, that, uh, enough of that crap, I suppose, international stuff. We are here <laughs> to talk about once. Yeah. But like that being said, you know, we've heard now uh, this week going into a, a mammoth game, another one in Thoma Park, Johan van Grand is talking about um, like making a lot of sort of war analogies. You can definitely tell yeah. they're ready for battle, and yet the casualty list is already fairly brimful and stacked, uh, like so many first team members ruled uh, injured, particularly now if you're looking at Munster's back row because the only specialist seven... Um, is Conor Oliver, we'll say. So what do you see Munster doing there, both of you guys? I mean, it's, yeah. uh, there's definitely a dilemma. I think Oliver is probably the most natural seven, obviously. He's a bit of a groundhog. He's been really good uh, this season, but it would be a massive step up. They do have four guys in the back row. Obviously, neither of Jack O'Donoghue or Copeland is a seven, but Jack O'Donoghue is a guy who's been brilliant in defensive line-outs, defensive malls, really good in attacking line-outs as well. He's kind of adapted his game. Um, and I think that might be actually important against Toulon in denying them that kind of access into the game off their line-out. If they get that rolling, if they get a front foot off first phase, they're really hard to stop. So if I was picking the team, I'd actually probably pick Jack O'Donoghue. I'd, I'd shift one of Omani or Sander to the seven shirt. Like, it is going to be raining, so does that traditional seven role really matter as much? Both of them can jackal. They can link play as well. You've also got Robin Copeland, who's been absolutely exceptional. Um, and it almost seems a shame they're going to lose him to Connick next season, but he's been in brilliant form physically, like, awesome in the last few weeks. And if you start him at number eight and move uh, standard seven, that's also going to work as well because he's going to be so good uh, in those physical exchanges, which are going to be so important uh, against Toulon. They've got good options, but I just think Jack O'Donoghue makes sense for this game. Yeah, I'd probably agree with Murray there. Um, like I said, Copeland's been in great form too. Um, Conor Oliver is just back from injury, so it's probably he's unfortunate that he has had a few games under his belt because he's a phenomenal player as well. But I think they'll probably go with Jack. Jack can play a seven or... Like like Murray said, you can you can move uh, Pete Pete to seven as well. So they probably switch between those two, um, playing either side of, of the back row. Um, look, obviously Tommy O'Donnell's a, a loss. Uh, he's been playing a lot at seven, but I, I think Jack O'Donnell was starting. I think he'll do a good job. I think obviously maybe stopping that back line, getting a good platform. I think the danger with this two land side is in the back line. Um, they're not as as probably. 
uh, star studded in the forward line as they have been in the past. Um, obviously, Labe and these guys, they're, they're big names, um, but I think their danger is really in the back three and obviously Bastereau and through the midfield. But if you can stop that, mm. that platform, I think it'll go a long way. To and, and that's why Rory Scanlon is going to be so important. He has to come through the HIA. The indication is at the moment that he's, he's progressing through that, which is going to be really important because you've already lost Chris Farrell and Jack Otaute, who are really powerful specimens. Sammy Arnold is a really powerful athlete. Like They talk about him being a bit of a freak in the gym, so I think he'll stand up in that dimension, but Scanlon has experience now. He's, he's one of the kind of first-choice picks in that back line, and he kind of links it all together, and he's got good line speed as well. And Bastereau's in the form of his life, you know. Mm. He's got a bit more responsibility there. Toulon have made him captain when, when Grado's missing as well, so he's kind of grown into that role, and I absolutely agree. You stop those guys, stop them getting that front foot, and, and you go a long way towards beating them. If Rory Scannell was to not make it through, just hypothetically, it leaves Munster with probably a centre pairing of Dan Goggin and Sam Arnold. Would that be how they go now? probably would be, yeah. And like with the greater suspect to two of them, as a pairing, you'd probably worry for them a little bit against a centre pairing of the calibre of Bastereau and Fekitoa, if that's the way they go. Yeah, he absolutely would. But it does look like Scannell should be okay. Um, if that isn't the case, it's a, it's a massive worry because those guys, Fekitoa has been really good, and especially the last couple of weeks, so powerful. Uh, really confident as well and he's kind of lifted this Toulon squad it looks like Simon Zebo actually is, is coming good as well which is really important just his voice at the back he, he's a good communicator and especially when you've lost Earls and probably Conway on the wings um, you need that that kind of direction and that leadership at the back so I think they'll be okay even with a couple of injuries I still think Munster should be viewing this game as a very winnable one I know they're talking themselves up as underdogs that suits them but realistically I think there's more than enough quality especially in that pack to, to beat Toulon you mentioned Robin Copeland there, and there is a fair chance that he won't start. But where is this burst of form coming from, Tomas? I mean, obviously, Billy Holland was kind of joking after the Scarlet's game, like, oh, if you could get him on a four-month contract every time, he'd be a serious player. But, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it, I think it's three man of the matches in four games he's had. Like, yeah, look, it's, it's tough for a player like him. He was phenomenal, you know, week in, week out when he was with Cardiff. And then he comes to Munster... And he starts the games when the non-internationals are away, and then almost irrespective of form, all of a sudden, like there's two, three internationals coming back into the mix. So he's he's fighting for one position with maybe three or four other back rows in Munster. So it's hard when you don't get a, a I suppose, a long run in the team, and when I suppose confidence then when you're not first choice come to European games, it might dent your confidence, and you might almost try too hard when you get your chance. Um, like in terms of training, um, his attitude. Like when I was with him, he was he was he was spot on. Great great guy, and uh, in great condition. Um, but I just guess the the run of games and the backing of a coach in Munster, he hasn't had that. Um, you know, you know, last two coaches, he he hasn't been first choice. And when you're not first choice under under a coach, it's probably hard to get that um, bit of form and confidence going. So um, I guess you can see now he's. He's probably feels loved again. Connacht want him. Connacht are delighted to be getting him. Maybe his confidence is up, and there's no pressure now in Munster. So whatever opportunities he gets, he's almost free and if any shackles. So maybe that's it. Is he then given your ball picking? I don't know to start over him. Like obviously he's a decent um, option to have on the off the bench. What is it then about O'Donoghue that would make you opt for? him rather than Copeland given the form that Copeland is in is it literally just a positional thing yeah like I said earlier on it's the the kind of line out defensive strength that he's developed like when he first broke through he was a he was a really strong ball carrying forward and he still does carry a lot uh, we've seen him probably more so in the wider channels now using his kind of rangy pace and his big kind of long stride uh, but he's kind of shifted towards being more of a Peter O'Mahony almost you know really strong in the air 
he's reading play in the line out really well and he's brilliant at kind of splintering into the front of the mall and, and disrupting there, even though he doesn't look like that kind of shape of guy. Uh, but he's developed a very specific set of skills. Uh, Johan van Graan mentioned that. He said, we've got to stop there at five-meter mall at times. He mentioned that as being possibly important in this game. So, yeah, for me, it would be a, a sensible call. And uh, I guess Munster have named him captain already this year, so that illustrates yeah. the belief that coaches have in him too. So I guess that would shift their thinking as well. Um, so he obviously is big. The, the management obviously have big trust in him too so that's kind of why I feel that they'll go for him over Copeland and is it like so you're saying they'll probably go for him would you personally go for him as well yeah I think I think obviously Robin I think he's more of a natural eight um, and I don't think you're going to shift CJ from eight even to facilitate um, him coming into the back row I think um, CJ's just been so good there for Munster and Ireland that you don't mess with his game um, and if if you need an impact, then you can bring bring Kopi in off the bench. So, yeah, that's that's why I think they'll go. You know, with Jack uh, at seven. Uh, you mentioned there that Toulon's pack probably isn't quite as vicious as it once was. Are we in danger of maybe overstating how good Toulon are based on a 49-0 win over Clermont, which, to be fair, made most of us think, "Oh, Jesus Christ, what have we got ourselves in for?" But uh, Saying that, a week prior or a game week prior, they'd lost to Ionax away. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that we're. I think we're probably reading too much into that home victory. Like you go back and watch that game. Clermont missed 49 tackles, which the keeper saying is a record in the top 14. It was really pathetic performance. They seem to have lost their their work rate, their desire to win. I think John O'Gibbs missing is big for them. So they seem to have shut down completely. Um, and it just showed that if you miss that initial tackle on Toulon, they're unbelievably clinical. Like their back three, as you mentioned, uh, Semi Rodradra has come in. He's a freak from rugby league. They've got Tuisova, who's close to untackleable in a one-on-one -on -one situation. And Chris Ashton has been on fire as well. Um, so I think you can over overread that performance. We go back a week before, and they've lost to Oina, who are bottom of the top 14. Mike Prendergast doing a great job there. But I spoke to him today. And he said, you know, their game plan was pretty simple. You know, kick into the Toulon half contestably, uh, keep them out of our half so they can't use the, the, the power game, um, and then retain possession for as long as you possibly can. Even if you're not scoring on each possession, you're denying them that chance to, to build their momentum. It was pretty simple stuff, uh, but Oyanax did really well, um, and it kind of just dented the confidence. I think Toulon, like you look at that 2013, 14, 15 side, um, and the big names they had, like big leaders like Wilkinson, Gitto, Bakis Bota, I don't see this group as having those same kind of players. And probably the guy who's missing is Paul O'Connell, who they signed for that very purpose, to be that kind of core leader. I think Guerrado is that figure, but he's 50-50 for this game. And I think if he's not there, I don't think they have that same kind of standard bearer that they did in that, that triple winning team. I, I just, I don't see this group, even though Man Nanu, guys like that, he could be even on the bench this weekend. They're big names, but I don't see them as being uh, as powerful uh, yeah. leaders. And even at halfback, they're very inexperienced with this gone day there, and Trinduke may come in at 10, but um, they're, not, they're not as good as obviously Munster at halfback. So uh, Murray's just gonna control the tempo of the game. As Murray said, kick contestable. That's a big area of Munster, so their wingers, their back three will be targeting. Although this two-line back three are phenomenal, I suppose, in broken play, they won't fancy it under a high ball in Thoman Park, and you can guarantee that Munster will test them there. So you know, I think it's I think it's advantage Munster, and like you said, um, I think there's a danger that, I suppose, people will start overestimating them, this two-line side based on one game, but their, I think their away form has been their, the worst away form since they've come into the top 14 this year. So... Um, they've really, really struggled away from home and obviously going to Thoman Park, we all know it's not an easy place. So, yeah, I, well, I wouldn't say put my 
mortgage on a, a we'll come back to it we'll come back to it <laughs> yeah that's a, like that's an interesting like so they i think they've lost uh, they've lost 10 league games in the regular season for the last three years and there's four uh, regular games to go this season so they might even top that again so it's not as if we're talking about necessarily all conquerors but how much when you're in the squad like a monster squad coming into a european game like that how much are you keeping an eye on the form of your opponents in the Champions Cup quarterfinal and semi-final, or does that even factor into it, given that it is a sort of a special occasion at Thomas Park, and you know you just have to be at 100% anyway? Um, you're acutely aware of how, how they're progressing in their in their respective league, whether it's the English league or French league. Um, but either way, if you know if they're bottom of the league or if they're top, you're still going to bring your your A game. You're still going to prepare. Um, you know, make sure you've everything done um, to the best of your ability, but um, just based on, I suppose, Munster probably licking licking their lips because when they saw the scoreline and you know the public and the media start bigging up this Toulon side, that's what Munster want. Whereas if they you know fall over the line with a basic win after losing to Oynax the week before, then all the pressures on Munster to produce and beat this, um, I suppose, over the hill Toulon side. Whereas now they've you know they've put 50 points on Clermont or they're superstars again, so that suits Munster. So I think this Munster team is set up perfectly for them. Now, that being said, they do carry plenty of threats in the back three, as you mentioned. Yeah. Uh, you're going to take a look at, uh, I think it was Chris, Ash- Chris Ashton's work. Yeah, were, very, very know, popular guy. There, yeah. I'm sure everyone nice knows Chris Ashton, but uh, he's been unbelievably effective for them this season. 21 tries in 19 top 14 games, which equals Nalaga's record from 2008 to 2009. So he's been exceptionally prolific. He's been in at 15 more recently, um, and it's just allowed him to to play to one of the strengths of his game, which we're going to look at here. Um, he's brilliant off the ball. His support play is, is exceptional. Uh, in this instance, it's Clermont who have kind of cleared to touch here, uh, just exiting their 22. Uh, and it's Tuisova who gathers it just over the touchline. Ashton's already waiting. He's already got ideas. You can see the, the kind of disjointed chase line here. Um, and Tuisova is going to fire that ball into him prime opportunity for him with a bit of space in front of him uh, and instantly you see his, his footwork you know he's going to beat one guy straight away uh, turns on the acceleration then he's going to spin out the next tackle we're seeing these poor tackles so we need to take that into account obviously um, but once he goes to ground they're going to recycle and play away to the left over the front foot uh, into a position where they can start to use their power now and his next move is really interesting you know he's on the ground there but as soon as they go wide he's going to work back to his feet we see him just here uh, work back to his feet here, straight off the ground. And, you know, traditionally, a, a fullback or a winger might go back out to this side, get a bit of width on the play. He's got a bit of a, a license now because he's so good off the ball at reading play. His first move is straight across there. He understands that there's going to be an opportunity wide on the left after he's, after he's uh, created that first kind of front foot. And they, they move it out there, Toulon, um, through the hands, a bit offloading, Bastro with a, a flick on pass. There's Radradra, uh, the first little offload inside. Bastero gets back on the ball, uses his power, that one-handed offload. Um, he's very hard to stop, but the tackling is really poor there. But there's Ashton. He's worked all the way across, just the inside shoulder. So a scan goes through, um, and he doesn't actually use him in this instance, but he's there on the shoulder, uh, supporting that play. He's come all the way across the pitch, just in front of the, in front of the attacking play, in behind the defence. Um, and it's something he does consistently well. You know, he doesn't get rewarded there, but 21 tries, a lot of them have come from that. Again, we see it here. He's going to hit this rock here in midfield. Um, going to come in there, gets a little, well, he's not really driving anyone off the ball there, but that's a back's rocking technique. But his first, his first instinct is go there. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to cut through the, the defensive line, I'm going to take that cheats line, um, and Fekatoa gets on the ball here in midfield, 
another poor tackle we're going to see, but it shows his power, gets through the tackle. There's Ashton in front of the ball already, you know, always looking for that second touch, that second involvement ahead of play. Uh, and he consistently does this, even when he doesn't get rewarded. Again here, Fekado should probably draw and pass and hit him there on his inside shoulder, uh, but he actually backs himself to go and finish the try. Uh, it's something he does really well, and he's done it consistently well uh, over the years. Um, I think it's, you know, if Toulon get that front football, they're always going to have an option to, to hit him on, on, on either shoulder. Uh, we did also want to just highlight one of his less glamorous moments, because this is probably going to be a little bit more popular. Uh, finds himself under a little bit of pressure here, and he's trying to, trying to clear the touch, but things go a little bit wrong. Uh, yeah, it's appalling. Yeah. I knew that would be a little bit more popular. Uh, yeah. And when we see the close-up, it's just the moment of horror on his face. Just here. Oh, no, it's gone badly wrong. <laughs> He's got the slice. There's a little ash splash, is it, right there? Uh, just to celebrate it. And it's try time. He's a massive threat. Like, that's a, a rare moment of, of, of poor play from him. But I guess he is, they can exploit him at fullback a little bit. His positioning probably isn't the best. Um, but going forward, he's absolutely lethal. Yeah, he's a massive something, all right. Like, how, how do Monster actually win the game? Like, did, you ever, did you ever play against him? Yeah, I would have played against him quite a bit. Obviously, like? Northampton. He's probably not that, that bad a guy, is he? He had a lot of run-ins with a few of the boys. He, himself and Raj, the A2I, they used to go for each other quite a bit. Um, they're two, two of the probably more vocal guys on the t both teams, so it used to be enjoyable listening to them anyway. Um, <laughs> what sort of things would they be saying? Come on. Um, <laughs> just that they didn't like each other very much. Oh, but, yeah. Um, but, like, in terms of, especially when he was on the wing, and obviously we'd have been aware of his threat back then, but... The work he does off the ball, and he's a constant um, option for an inside ball or taking that support line. He's very impressive, and I know a few of our coaches would have told a few of our younger wings to watch his support play and his support lines because that's where he gets a lot of his tries. And as Murray said, he, you know, with that extra freedom and he has, has that license with Toulon, he is very, very dangerous. But you know, compare him to the English wingers and Johnny May. Johnny May is clueless as to as the position of play and, and how to attack a line. And you got uh, one of the best wingers in the world uh, there. And so that kind of illustrates England's issues. Um, but yeah, he's a, he's a great player, a fantastic threat. But like Murray said there, Munster will target him with high balls. They won't be afraid of kicking the ball. Um, directly to him once the once Munster's defensive line is is um, is strong and inviting him to run the ball back. Um, so Munster will kind of use their attacking intent to bring them on as well and try and turn that into a weakness. So while they're <coughs> extremely threatening, I think Munster will be confident that their defensive line will will be up to it. Yeah, is it is it a case of Munster almost trying to replicate or? or create something that's slightly more sophisticated than uh, Mike Prendig what Mike Prendergast yeah. was telling you where it's like you are kicking contestables you're keeping them out of your own half and maybe almost take something from the performance against the Scarlets at the weekend where you just bully them up front take your chances when they come and, and just sniff yeah. them or like you know ensure they don't have a sort of a snip within the game we're kind of in a weird position because we're coming off six nations really so the kind of first choice team hasn't played together probably more magnified with Leinster getting everyone back but Murray Sander O'Mahony makes such a difference to what they can do I think the most relevant game is all the way back in October when Racing came to Toman Park it was a wet night these lads are massive they're going to smash you all day that was the big talk before the game and Munster were unbelievably vicious and violent in contact. Their defense was so aggressive. They kicked contestably. They kept Racing back in their half. You know, it was nil all until the 61st minute when Conor Murray gets that block down try. And then Munster took another chance really clinically in the corner. I think it's going to be a very similar game to that. Kick contestably, 
defend for your lives. You know, Clermont clearly didn't do that and they got blown away. Um, and also uh, compete unbelievably aggressively at the, at the line-out, which Munster did that day. They obviously lost a lot of possession in the line-out that day as well, but they denied Racing that chance to, to kind of build the, the phases that allow their power players to come around the corner and bash through you and win those one-on-one collisions. So I think we're going to see something similar to that game. Qu- could be quite low-scoring again, but I don't think Munster would really care. Yeah, you're going to look at the breakdown in a minute, are you? Monster yeah. breakdown. Yeah, well, we actually want to look at the, the, like, for me, the most important factor in this, they've lost a back line, essentially, with Earls and Farrell and, and Tauda and all these guys uh, and Conway. But the Munster pack, for me, is, is technically better than the Toulon pack. I think they work harder. I think their ruck work, their set-piece stuff is, is just more clinical, efficient. Um, and we're going to look at one example. This is from the Scarlet's match. Um, and just summed up the, the Munster pack to me. They started with a five-metre line-out. We've marked Kilcoyne and, and Tommy O'Donnell here. They're going to be really key to this clever little uh, set-piece play. Uh, Marshall feeds in. You get the ball here off the top, and they look like they're going to go down to, to Maul. Kilcoyne comes around the corner here. You see Tommy O'Donnell make that late run. And the two of them are really important. Uh, it's a little transfer, and you can see that Killer's just, Kilcoyne is just blocking off the, the kind of eye line there for James Davies. And he's just slightly attracted into that, so as O'Donnell comes around the corner, you can see now he's having to readjust. So already he's lost the, the chance to make a gain line tackle there. And O'Donnell goes right over the gain line. You see Rory Scannell getting in on the latch. So the backs have to play a part in this too. Billy Holland, who's a real unsung hero in this squad, with a really efficient little clear out there, kind of adapts and, and you get clean ball to play off. Uh, that's typical Billy Holland. Uh, Reese Marsh around the corner, and now we're going to see Ryan and Jean Klein, two guys again who get their ruck detail uh, right more often than not. They clear really deep. You can see they drive Shingler all the way there just to prevent any little fold around the corner there from the, the extra defenders. Again, there's a latch. That's Ian Keatley latching on this time. Everyone plays a role in these kind of really, uh, you know, you've got to convert in these five-meter chances. They all understand that. They have that mentality. Um, and you get another clean ball to play off. Around the corner comes Tommy O'Donnell. This is actually where he gets injured, unfortunately. And you get another latch again. You're going to see Jack O'Donnell with a little vicious clear out on a guy who's already on the ground, but... Just get him off our ball. Allow us to play quick ball, and you're going to see the effect that has because, you know, Arnold's kind of almost blocking there for, for Copeland, and he can just pick and jam over there on the left, using him as almost as a shield. So I thought it was a really good example of how clinical this monster pack can be from close range. And though the Toulon boys are big boys, if your technique, your rocking work, uh, your line-out work is that efficient, uh, I think you can beat anyone. We've talked about the, the defensive line I just want to highlight, you know, Peter O'Mahony, probably the best defensive line-out forward in the world, possibly, even at this stage. He's exceptional. Gets up there, nicks a, a two-long ball, and, or sorry, a racing ball, and they can't get that front foot platform. Here you see they're not actually going to win the ball, but it's a double pot of defensive jumps. Uh, Holland there, O'Mahony there. And even though they don't get a clean steal, it's scrappy, and now they can uh, pour through and make a good tackle. Again, they can't play that set-piece phase, or set-piece starter play, whatever they had lined up there. So I think that's going to be really important again, but... I think the Munster pack is a, is a real reason for optimism this weekend. Yeah, how would you compare, the, say, the current crop in the pack to the one that you would have been playing behind, say, the two years he won European Cups? I know, <laughs> genuine question. I mean, are, are, they sort of, are they near on a par with the likes of the lads that won in 06 and 08? Um, <laughs> we can come back to that as well. No, um, well look, I look, I think you had, like, freaks in that team back in 06, 08. You, like... As, uh, I suppose there are no legends to the game like you know there were cornerstones of Munster Irish rugby for 10-15 years like John Hayes um, Paul O'Connell David Wallace um, like David Wallace was probably the most powerful um, ball carrier I've ever seen um, 
he was phenomenal like and, and that back row like Quinny, Axel, um, you know, you had uh, Mick Galway, you had, who else um, in that back row, there was I'm probably letting a few out so Leamy was yeah, there. Leamy yeah, Leamy was there, like they were like it was just you lose one guy, the next guy come in is is even better. Um so I, I, you, know, you have to say they you know that the old monster pack they, they they won games and obviously you know Raj control games behind them but um this pack is is good it's very very well coached well organized um like Murray said to be a lot better uh, tech technically um they'll they'll be a lot better in terms of what they're doing in terms of analysis um better organized than this tool on side and like you have you know an international front row um you've like props who are playing international rugby coming on so um it shows it illustrates the strength and depth that we now have in the front row whereas a couple of years ago there was a worry obviously when when john hayes was going and when marcus horn was going in flannery that we wouldn't be able to replicate that but they have replicated that you know Niles Daniel <laughs> was on the bench at the weekend but he's now an international hooker as well so um and like murray said billy holland he's extremely good rugby brain he's um, he's the oldest in the squad now. He's 32. Yeah, is yeah. it? That's crazy. Which is young enough. Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, but I know they. You know he he runs the lineouts for Mon this monster side. Um, obviously with, with with Jerry Flannery, who's the forwards coach. So they're an extremely efficient pack and know exactly what they're doing. But I don't think they're quite on, on par with the pack of old yeah. yet. They've plenty, they plenty to prove, don't they? Like yeah. this whole squad. Like Keely said the other day, if we if we win this match, I think they're talking up quite a bit. It'll be the biggest achievement we've had, but they haven't had the, the glory. So mm. I don't think it's fair to even to to, to try and compare yeah. the two of them yet. Uh, if they go on and win a Hind Cup, then maybe that becomes a, a valid debate. The, the potential is definitely there, but you got to win trophies to be considered great. You mentioned there how like you if particularly in the front row, if somebody falls by the wayside, somebody else can come in and it's almost a conveyor belt now. I can't help but wonder, like, our monster, for all the, I suppose, success, relative success of the last 18 months, are they papering over some cracks a little bit when you consider how few players coming through are actually from Monster now? So many of them are recruited mm -hmm. from Dublin, from South Africa. Like, when you see them signing two South African schoolboys and you look at the Ireland 20s that lined out against England a couple of weeks ago and there's one Monster player in the team, like, is there problems down the road or is this just something that's part of the professional game now? Yeah, I think it's just the way the professional game has gone. Um, even as far back, you know, obviously, you know, like of Felix Jones um, coming in, coming from Evil Leinster Academy and he was a, a star schoolboy and he gets caught in a backlog at Leinster and comes down and he becomes a monster legend. Um, but then vice versa, you know, you got like the own Redden Monster man ending up going to Leinster. So Shawnee Cronin's a Monster man. He's in Leinster. Mike so, Ross would have been. Yeah, there. yeah. So like it, it's not. It's not as if it's just Monster just kind of benefiting from it. Um, uh, New Sephora obviously has encouraged players and like I suppose going back to to my day and you know it was a big big move. Um, I suppose switching allegiance to a different province, whereas now it seems to be less less of an issue. Um, I still, you know, I, I don't think I could ever do it, but, um, you know, guys are so obsessed and fixated with playing international rugby now that they're willing to, I suppose, sacrifice their their um, provincial allegiance uh, and, and play with, whether it's Munster, um, Ulster, whatever, Connacht or Leinster, so, um, and that's the way it's gone, it's no longer are you going to be um, I suppose 90, 95% of your native province, it's going to be littered with a few foreigners and obviously 
a few uh, a few fellow um, countrymen who are not from your native province. <laughs> yeah, like I think the challenge for Munster and Ulster and Connacht is to look at the Leinster production line and go, how can we achieve something close to that? Obviously, with population, yeah, the money thing. that's in those schools yeah. as well, it's going to be difficult to match that. But you can definitely uh, drive towards achieving that. Like if you look at the under 19s today, say they had six Munster guys on Saturday, they had eight Munster guys in that under 19s team. Um, and I think the success of Glenstall Abbey is really um, a case study for everyone else. You know, 250 students, pretty incredible achievement winning the Munster Schools Cup. And like you, you heard the out half Ben Healy was playing for the under 19s today, interviewed after the match, and he sounded like a professional rugby player. He's yeah. talking about we had to find our structure, we have this instinct belief. I didn't know what he was on about for a while actually, but, <laughs> but he's unbelievably professional at the age of 18. Um, and I think Glenstall have driven that. You know, Sean Skeen's the head coach there, they have Tom Hayes. John Hayes' brother, who used to be at Exeter, he's in coaching them. Kelvin Brown, a former Ireland under 20, is helping out a couple other guys. So they've had a really professional program. Even the shape they play in attack is very similar to a lot of uh, professional teams. So I think, like, you yeah, know, they is, obviously have a yeah. good investment in their program as well, but yeah. I think more schools can be pushed up. Yeah, it is important to maintain that, I suppose, that authentic local, um, you know, vibe that you produce mainly homegrown players if you can it's important to have a strong academy system a strong school system um, club rugby system it's it's important to maintain that identity because Munster have always been strong because we have a genuine sense of place and belonging to your province and you know the others have followed suit too Leinster to be fair to them have have developed that identity too so and that's very important for your club side and even the, the foreign lads coming in that's what they enjoy so much about Munster is that there's a genuine investment in your jersey and I want to play for your jersey and you know my experiences in the UK and in France illustrate I suppose how stark a contrast professional rugby is over there there is there's no attachment to the jersey it's literally a professional game and while you might develop a bit of a grow for for a team or your teammates you don't have that genuine love or um, I suppose affinity with, with wanting to play for your local team and this Irish teams have that and the teams in England and France they've nothing like it so it's important to probably maintain that, that that link with your home province and try and have as many of the homegrown players and look Munster there are a few they're trying to do that but you know they have to facilitate probably the best players moving within provinces too the, the two South African school boys coming straight from school is, a, is an interesting one because it hasn't happened before as you said, the profession game is changing. Like other clubs are doing that. Actually, from what I understand, a French club was scouting the Munster Schools competition and looking at a couple of the guys from Prez uh, about potentially bringing their over to their academy. That's the way it's gone. But you know, one of them is a, one of the African guys is, a, is an outside centre. The other is a tight head prop. I watched the Ireland under 19s, and probably the most impressive player on the pitch was was a, an outside centre from from Prez. Actually, uh, Sean French. Sean French, yeah. Exceptional, like unbelievable talent. There was a tight head prop, Milne, who's also a Munster boy as well. So. I guess in a way it's 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 that competition at an earlier stage. You know, Munster do have prospects in that in that department in those two positions, but now they've got to push beyond these two highly lauded uh, South African guys. Well, they did Munster did that too, 15 years ago when I was in the academy. Jeremy Manning came in straight out of school, and mm. Mike, I forget Mike's surname now. He only stayed for a year, but he was a centre. So they brought in these guys like 18, 17, 18 year old straight over from school. Um, I, like I used to, basically Jeremy arrived over, used to stay in up by UCC, I used to pick him up every morning, bring him into the gym at half six in the morning, so he's just fresh off the boat, straight over to Munster Rugby, he ends up staying here for five or six years, obviously he was behind Raj, so 
didn't quite work out for him, but <laughs> it's not as if it's a new thing either. So um, like that was 15, 16 years ago, and Munster were doing that. So um, I guess the players have to want to come too, and these two kids have obviously been approached inter internally in South Africa too, so they've seen this as a, as a good opportunity. And like Murray said, there is French teams scouting um, players in England, players in Ireland now, and trying to bring them over because the new rules in France you have to be a, a French qualified player and if you go over and start playing at 18, 19 and play for three years in an academy system, then that qualifies you as a French player. Um, and they have to have 14 or 15 in match day squad now or otherwise they'd be penalised with points. So um, they're getting smarter and coming, getting around those rules. So that's just, I guess that's the advent of professional rugby yeah. and it's becoming a business. But obviously within Ireland, we still want to maintain that, that link to, to our provinces. <laughs> were, were you shocked then by the lack of that when you did move to London Irish, when you're down in Montpellier? Like, I'm sure you would have heard that it's not, quite, it's not the same as playing for an Irish province, but was it jarring to just realise how indifferent maybe people were towards the jersey, as you mentioned? Um, yeah, well, I, I kind of knew I was never going to have, have a, what I had with, you know, I was, came into, like you said, a, a team of legends and... You know the relationship we had with the fans and you know every game you go to whether it's in England France there's a massive traveling contingent so yeah, I was probably aware I was spoiled but I was probably shocked at the indifference and the lack of almost respect some players have towards towards their jersey or their their employers like um but it's especially in France now it's such a uh, I suppose there's such a high high proportion of foreigners coming from Southern Hemisphere earning huge amounts of money and the I suppose the owners just almost expect if you're on 30, 40 grand a month that you'll deliver but that's not the way it works. They probably don't match the investment in players with investment in S&C. They don't embrace the sports science side of it as much as we do over here. Um, they don't, they don't um, invest in much as medical in terms of looking after players so um, and the player management system in Ireland really helps too. So you kind of get flogged in France if you're anywhere fit, you play. Whereas there's a strategic plan here to manage the best players. And that, I guess that told you in the Six Nations and hopefully it will tell for the provinces in, in, in the latter stages of the European Cup. With that in mind then, like if you're in an absolute dogfight with a French side, now albeit Toulon had incredible success only a couple of years ago, but if it was nip and tuck, like does it, when you're playing for your jersey, when you're playing for your locality or at least a team that you have an affinity towards, surely that's a little bit of a, a psychological edge on guys that are there earning 30, 40 grand that you know, don't necessarily identify with the club. It, it is a little advantage or a big advantage. Um, but I guess maybe the guys don't, who are there in Munster, you know, they probably don't realise how much of an advantage or how, how much, uh, I suppose, how... Much, and how much disarray there is often in these French teams because um, they are capable of, I suppose, one-off um, moments of magic um, and then if a team gets momentum, they start to believe and it's when these teams click or they start to believe that they really get, go into gear and they're very, very dangerous because they're littered with internationals. Um, but it's when there's a bit of doubt and maybe their set pieces and functioning that they'll just start to hide. So, um, like looking back now on, on our monster team, we probably should have won more. We probably believed the hype about this French teams, uh, but it's when you go and experience it and see the lack of um, organisation, uh, the lack of cohesion that some of the teams exhibit, 
that you know we had that in abundance and we probably didn't believe how good we were and I suppose that you talked to a few of the players probably should have won more obviously we had great days but um, probably didn't realise how much of an advantage we had over these teams in terms of um, genuine um, I suppose uh, cohesion and almost a brotherhood yeah like that's one of the things we were actually talking about on the way down here was like if you looked at 2007 for your team it was a kind of a blip in between yeah. two legendary years how difficult is it when you win a European Cup to come back and, and do it again and, and to sort of sustain or even surpass the levels that you'd achieved in a given year like what I suppose what went wrong in 2007 compared to 2006 oh, I guess they you look back now and for it, was, it wasn't just 2006 it was obviously five six seven years in the making that was so mm. it was almost uh um it, like there was just a surge of you know emotion and relief and you know you have to, it was almost job done and then you you enjoy that and you probably savor it too much and then you come back and maybe you we probably took things for granted and might not have trained as hard but certainly after that quarter final when we were beaten by Connetley it was uh, a serious kind of uh, a wake-up call and um, we needed to do something different or um, address address issues that we had. So we did that and obviously um, we won again in 2008 and then 2009 we were fl like flying it into quarterfinals, uh, hammered a, a star-studded Ospreys team but then um, I got injured and we lost the semi-final <laughs> to Leinster. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So now that Leinster team kind of you know, like that was one of the best occasions. Obviously, pity with the result, and they just kind of almost ambushed, you know, us that day. Um, so it is very, very difficult because, you know, that squad we would have been flying high, form of our lives, and I think we were favourites going into that Leinster game. And I guess it just shows the power of of motivation. And um, when you really want something, you, you'll get it. And that Leinster team. They were sick of seeing us um, winning and, you know, guys like Brian O'Driscoll, guys like Gordon Darcy, all these guys have spoken about how much it hurt seeing Munster get over the line and win European Cups and I guess that stirred something within them and they went on to surpass, I guess, what we achieved and they, they did they maintain it? Did they go back-to-back -back Heineken Cups, did yeah, they? Yeah, 11, so, uh, 11 and 12. So they did it, like, so we, we just paved the way for them, I guess. Um, <laughs> sure. So, yeah, look, motivation, I guess, is the hardest thing when it comes to to going back to back. And unfortunately, we never did it, but we probably should have. <laughs> All right, well, we'll leave it there for half time. Uh, anybody who wants to use the bathroom, go get a drink, work away. Uh, we'll be back in 10, 15 minutes. So take Cheers. I suppose we better give the other crowd a mention. Um, listen, they're arguably the best team in Europe, I suppose. So it's only, only right that you get some sort of... Uh, analysis going into this one obviously big win for uh, Saracens at the weekend and they got their internationals back conversely Leinster were still without a few and uh, I suppose it was kind of they had their momentum interrupted by the Six Nations where they'd won nine games straight and it's a case now of whether they can rediscover that uh, when they do have their internationals back this weekend when we spoke to Vlad Mopelli match in January, ended a nine-game nine, uh, winning streak. He would love to have played that, that quarter-final the, the, the week after, but that's not to be the case. They've lost Henshaw through injury. Um, they've also lost to the Ospreys in Edinburgh in, in the last couple of weeks, so their form has dipped away a bit, but they're also getting that, that bounce from the Grand Slam. You know, 
so many of the grandstand winners coming into their team. Their four pack is unbelievably formidable, even with a couple of injuries. I think Jack Conan looks like he may miss out now, um, but you get Ruddock and Sean O'Brien back, um, and they have the best out half in this competition. They have a, Gary Ringrose is now back and fit and, and firing, as we saw in Six Nations. So there's more than enough quality in their team. I guess it is a case of getting that momentum back, but you also get that bounce from the grandstand, which counts for a huge amount. I think they're, they're rightfully favourites coming into this game. Yeah, back row again, I suppose, is sort of a talking point for Leinster. Like, fair enough, if Conan misses out, you still have Dan Levy to come back from uh, internationals, uh, Jordy Murphy, and then you mentioned Reese Ruddock, Sean O'Brien. How do you think they will line out at the weekend, actually, in the back row? Or what, what do you think their best combination is out of who's fit? Probably, obviously, Levy's a freak. He'll, he'll go in seven. <laughs> I think Sean O'Brien will probably have a big point to prove. He'll be gutted after losing out in the, in the Six Nations, the Grand Slam. So... Once they're confident he's fit, I'd, I'd, I'd lob him straight in. Um, and Ruddock or Jordy Murphy probably at six. Um, obviously, Jordy Murphy's probably fit. He's played regular enough rugby. He's come on for in, the, in the Six Nations a couple of times. They'll probably keep, keep Ruddock on the bench, although they're, you know, they're really uh, happy where he is at. And I know they were raving about his, uh, his, his, his numbers and all the, the stats he's, he's doing in training. But, you know, he's, he was in fantastic form prior to his injury. So um, it's, that's a formidable back row, obviously. So, um, yeah, and then obviously Sexton coming back in um, and likes a ring rose. But, you know, you have James Ryan coming into the pack. Um, so it'll be interesting to see their second row, whether I suppose Toner and Fardy were starting a lot of the bigger games. But has Ryan... Um, demanded a starting place in that pack too and we all know the strength of their front row so um, yeah, Leinster in, a, in a, a very good place obviously Logan Henshaw he was spectacular for them prior to prior to the Six Nations he's a big loss but I think they have the strength and depth to, 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 to go without him like They're one of the probably few teams who have big decisions to make you know you could start Carberry at 15 Rob Carney's been so good in the Six Nations as well and you go one of them, the back row, there's still options there in the second row you mentioned, like Devin Toner, Fardy been excellent. So they're, they're an enviable position with that depth they have in their squad. Um, and alternatively, Saracens then have lost Billy Vunapola, possibly one of the best players in the world when he's fully fit and firing. He carries strong, he can play out the back door with his handling and really good decision making as well. Owen Farrell is 50-50 for the weekend, so um, they've got a bit of question mark around their team and, and certainly haven't been in, the, in their best form this season at all. They've been stuttering. Uh, they did have a win against Harlequins last weekend. I didn't think it was as convincing as as, as is being portrayed. And um, so definitely question marks over them. They are a, a, a big title winning side as well. So they'll certainly be up for the up for the quarterfinal. But I think Leinster with the squad they have and and the confidence they take from before the Grand Slam and also now with the Grand Slam is counts for a huge amount. Yeah, you mentioned like they're in an enviable enviable position. Probably the envy of Europe and maybe even the world in terms of their again a sort of a conveyor belt of. Um, of talent being produced. How has that come about, you reckon, Tomas, say even relative to the other three provinces? I, I suppose some of it comes down to the fact that you've got a lot of schools up there that have simply got a lot more money and, and then therefore more resources to try and cultivate that talent. Yeah, look, they obviously have a fantastic school system um, and youth system now that they've started picking players like Furlong and these guys. Shawnee O'Brien probably inspired that. Um, but they've really targeted, I suppose, the, the non-traditional um, Counties that maybe wouldn't have been associated with Munster, or with Leinster, and would have been more the the Lunsters as they were known. <laughs> um, I know that that did piss off a lot of the the old the old Leinster players, 
Um, but they've done a fantastic job as a province in cultivating the talent that's there, schools rugby, and fast-tracking it. Like, these kids coming out of school, um, club rugby now, they're ready to play internationally, like the lads have shown at 19, 20 years of age. Um, that's just phenomenal, the physicality required for international rugby, and these guys are... Are, are not only able for it, but they're they're setting the tone like so. Um, and then I suppose um, Stuart Lancaster, like they rave about him in terms of encouraging the the players to express themselves and play. So they're coming out of the school system where there is genuine attacking rugby, and they're not being stymied by professional rugby and told you have to kick the ball or you have to do X, Y, and Z. There's a genuine excitement by these players when they are playing with Leinster to express themselves and. Like that's why they like Carberry so much is because he can step up maybe the, the, the opposite side of the rock that Sexton is at and he can become a ball player. So they have genuine attacking threats both sides of the ball, uh, both sides of the rock. Um, but they will go probably go with Kearney this weekend because he's form dictates selection there. So um, Carberry probably have to start on the bench for Leinster. And like you said, that illustrates the strength and depth that they have. Yeah, Tomas alluded to him there, but Stuart yeah. Lancaster has had a massive influence on what's happened over the last couple of years. Yeah, really on Irish rugby in general. Like He's in with the Irish under-20s, leading sessions there as a guest. He's working with schools, going in and doing seminars. He's had a real influence in a short space of time. And as you say, encouraging players to, to play quite a bit. You know, last season it was all about building that attacking shape and attacking structure and, and mindset, I think. This season, I feel like they've developed a more kind of rounded game. They can do different things, you know. They can bully Glasgow's pack into submission with their maul. They can kick and, and retrieve. They can have the attacking kicks. They can spread the ball wide. Um, and he's very open about what he's trying to do with Leinster. You know, he goes to these coaching seminars and he talks about having identified three kind of distinct styles of play. One is kind of pressure, he calls it, monster and Saracens, you know, kick chase, territorial, set piece based. Um, another one is possession, teams like Exeter who try and hold the ball through really long phases, play out of their own half. Um, and then the other one he calls smarts is a team like Ireland, so based around power plays, you know, a set piece over three, four, five phases where everyone's in the right position. You're very kind of tailored to the opposition. So he wants Leinster to be a blend of those. You know, he's looked at that squad and, and rightfully said, these guys can do everything. You know, the quality is there to do, to be able to play in all different w ways. And I think we've seen that already in this season. You mentioned the, the, the attacking threat on both sides of the rock. Like, it sounds like such a simple thing, but a lot of teams don't have it. Um, obviously, it helps if you have a second, a second playmaker. But here we're going to look at an example where, where they don't actually have that second playmaker, but they still uh, kind of manipulate the Glasgow defence um, just by having a threat on both sides of the rock. Uh, if we can get the analysis up on the... There you go. No, we'll get it. Like... No, they, they, have this, they have this threat on, on both sides of the rock, so that even though the defence is set on one side, they feel they can go forward with line speed there on, on the right. Um, the left-hand side of it is, is also a threat as well. And I think you've seen throughout their, their Champions Cup pool stage games, um, like even in the stats and stuff, there's a real balance to it. So they kick a relatively high amount. They've gotten a relatively high amount of line breaks. Their maul powers up at other times. Um, thanks, on Luke. Uh, yeah. Um, and there's just a real, a real variety and balance to their game. So I think that's the most exciting thing for them. I think it's why the players are so confident in Lancaster now, because he's built this ability to do a, a lot of different things with their, with their attacking play. So, yeah, if they need to go and bully that Saracens pack, which they might feel they can after the Six Nations, after guys like James Ryan uh, ha had a big impact, they can do that. If the game breaks up, they feel they can do that with guys like Carberry coming off, off, off the bench as well. Um, so they have a real, um, they have a real ability to, to really mix up. This is an example of that, of that thread on both sides of the rock. Um, uh, it starts with Luke McGrath, and you just see here, 
he has a little look to the right-hand side. And, and we're going to see from the other angle how key that is. You know, it's, are they going to play right? Instead, he switches back to the left, and you have Johnny Sexton at first receiver. You're going to see Josh van der Fleer running this really hard line just to fix the two, the second and third defender out from the rook, while Issa Natewa goes out the back. Uh, Johnny Sexton plays a simple pass. It's lovely hands from, from Natewa. And then you get your second row forward, a guy who has also played in the back row, in Fardy. You've seen him in this position so often this season. Just a basic skill, a, a catch, draw, does really well, fits that, fixes that defender and hits low on the outside. So they've converted that little uh, chance on the, on the outside edge. We spoke about Chris Ashton's support play. There's Johnny Sexton after giving the initial pass. He's ahead of the ball already. He's always looking for that second touch. And he's on the inside shoulder. Uh, Luke McGrath is also there as well. You can see him there supporting as well. They're really good at getting guys through for a second touch. But I think one of the reasons why Sexton is able to finish that so well uh, so comfortably is, is because of that little look to the, right, to the right-hand side of the Leinster Rook. You know, these guys are maybe not a threat in terms of their passing game, but there's three forwards there ready to carry. And Ali Price, just in behind the Rook, he initially just moves off to that left-hand side of the Rook. He's worried about the threat of the forwards there. Um, and he does, re he does change his line there, but he's just a couple of steps behind. Like, you want to be going early as a nine, don't you? And getting that sweeping line in behind. Josh van der Fleer sits down those two defenders there really well, uh, and they're able to convert really clinically. Brilliant play from Fardy. But you can see Sexton now, he's, he's on that, that support line preemptively looking for the ball. And there's Ali Price now. He's just a couple of steps behind Sexton. And those couple of steps are, are really crucial because Sexton can get the ball and just get a little fend in and finish. Um, and, you know, without that little threat to the right-hand side of the rock, Ali Price goes a little bit earlier and he makes that tackle and, and, they, and they recover maybe and, and scramble. But I think it's just a good example of what Lancaster has built in terms of that dual thread on both sides of the rock. He's, he's been really influential. The players absolutely rave about him. I thought it was really telling that Jamie Heesip said during the week, you know, the two best coaches I've worked with are Lancaster and Schmidt. You, don't, you haven't really seen that before where players are comparing another coach to, to Schmidt almost with their comments. So he's been a, a brilliant addition for Irish rugby. Um, again, I suppose when we mentioned that uh, you could possibly overstate Toulon's brilliance based on a 49-0 win, you weren't hugely impressed by Saracens win over Harlequins neither of you got the impression even though it was you know it was probably clinical but not necessarily them back to their best do you fancy Leinster this weekend with that in mind they probably look like a more complete team this year like for throughout the season as a whole yeah big time I'd be extremely surprised if they don't get a victory this weekend um, like to illustrate the issue that Saris were having and you know they've They've had to go and sign um, Blair Cohn from London Irish on a short-term loan till the end of the season. He's a back row, and he, he came on in the second row um, last weekend. Um, he's not a second row. He's a decent back row. He's played international rugby for Scotland, obviously. Um, but that kind of illustrates the issues they're having within their pack. Um, there's certainly their look. Their starting pack would still be good. Um, you know, they'd like Vinopola in the front row. Um, um, you know, they've Brits to come off the bench at hooker if they need him. He's an impact player. It told Jay, obviously. So they'll have a decent pack. Um, but they won't have that strength and depth that, you know, you'll see Leinster emptying internationals off the bench after 50 minutes to strengthen up their, to, their scrum to, you know, to attack, to attack this um, Saracens pack. Look, they'll have, obviously, Farrell, he's, he's doubtful as well at 10. Um, they have decent players, obviously, the likes of Bosch and and these guys, Sean Maitland on the wing, they've, um, they're very good attacking players out wide too, but they wouldn't play as an attractive a brand as Leinster or give these guys as much opportunity to maybe attack a ball in hand. So I think Leinster just have too much strength and, and, and too much depth for this Saracens team, all, 
although they, obviously their record in Europe over the last few years has been phenomenal. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I, do, I, I do think, still think it's going to be a, a close game. And, and when Saris get rolling, they are brilliant with those kind of, especially if Farrell is playing, he's quite directed line. Those little screen plays, kind of rugby league-esque. They're brilliant with those attacking grubbers when they get into your kind of defensive zone as well. So they do have major threats across the board. What we haven't seen from them is the kind of consistent performance across games. Like you talk about how hard it is to back up success upon success upon success. And it looks like mentally sometimes they're just switching off in games, even against Quinns. It looked like they were going to go away and dominate that game, but Quinn scored the end through, through um, their lock, and, and they kind of almost come back into the game again. So I don't think they're as efficient, as, as kind of machine-like as they were when they, when they uh, had a convincing win over Munster, say, and went on to win a, a second title. I think there's something missing there mentally, and maybe, as you say, it's just that difficulty of getting that motivation back up every single time. Yeah, uh, conscious of time, I want to get as many questions in as possible, but we do have to look uh, briefly at Connacht. They have their own European quarterfinal coming up. Two teams that know each other well, Connacht and Gloucester. Again, we saw at the weekend Connacht fall foul of a, a sort of a late defeat, and it's it's proving costly to them this season. If, how do you see this one? Like again, I suppose home advantage for Connacht, and like, they've had to add extra allocations to uh, <laughs> to the sports grant, which is unbelievable, and it should be a, a special atmosphere again. And will it be enough to see them over the line along yeah. with? Well, like it's their season. It's it's their season on the line. It's a it's a final because they're out of that Champions Cup contention now. I think realistically in the in the Pro 14, so they've got to win this competition or get into the final at least because a losing finals could even potentially uh, go into the Champions Cup depending on how the the winner has done in their league. So everything on the line for them. I think they have Bundyaki back, Marmion's back, and Ulton Delan as well. So they're really boosted by those guys, and and Bundyaki is just so important for them. He, he produces those big moments in defence, really obviously strong carrying. He's got that offloading game, which we probably see more of with Connacht as well. So um, I'd be surprised if they don't produce one of their best performances of the season under this kind of pressure to, to save what has been otherwise a pretty disappointing campaign. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one, of, like, one of the most impressive players in the Connacht this season, uh, and they signed a new contract only a few weeks back, Tom Farrell, and we're talking about as well players moving from province to province. He's really made a name for himself out there and looks to have a, a proper future there. Yeah, like some of the stats up there, just incredible. You know, he's he's uh, making meters every time he carries. 17 uh, clean breaks, 72 defenders beaten across both competitions as well. And like Aki, obviously tends to take the focus because he's he's such a big player, such a physical presence. But this guy has been has been so impressive. We just want to highlight a little thing about his play. It's, it's quite subtle. You know, he's a guy who went to Leinster Academy and then went away to to Bedford Blues, but I think the Irish system realised he's got a bit too much talent to, to waste. And he hasn't quite come in the picture for Ireland yet, but I think um, if he keeps performing the way he is, he may be coming, coming into that mix. Uh, we just see here that Carty gets on the ball and he's going to attack the line here. And it's just a subtle little thing from Farrell who starts on the outline and just straightens back up. Uh, and you can see the effect that has. You know, his opposite man just slips. You know, and that is on account of Carty attacking the line as well. But it's just a subtle little shift from, from uh, Farrell, and he gets on the shoulder uh, to finish that try. He's got those little details to his play that are so important. We're going to see it again here. Simple line-out play, and this is poor defence from Munster back in uh, the Pro 14 defeat up in Galway. But he's attacking that seam there, just in between the last defender off the line-out and the first guy who's back 10 metres. It's, it's somewhere a lot of teams go, obviously. But he hits that line nice and late, gets the ball coming up towards full stride. And then when he gets into that space, you're going to see him just here. He transfers the ball into his right hand. He knows he's beaten the tackle on that side. And he can get that fend with his left hand as well. Just little details that make centre play so much easier. Uh, and he gets in the clear. And I think he said he was cramping 
ramping at this stage. You can probably see it in his running style, but he finishes his job as well. So it's really good to see players like that uh, emerging, I guess, for Connacht, and, and they'll certainly need more of them if they're going to if they're going to do a job on, on Saturday. 100%. Before we come back to the lads for their final predictions, uh, let's get your own questions in. Does anybody have anything to ask Murray and or Tomas? No? Okay, well, we'll uh, <laughs> uh, can we get a microphone down to this gentleman here? Cheers, Mike, lads. The, um, with Henshaw and Noel Reid missing for Leinster on uh, Sunday, probably looks like Nisewa in at 12. Is that a possible weak link, do you think, for Saracens to attack? Yeah, I think Nisewa's done a pretty good job there, actually. Um, like he's obviously a defensive leader, even when he's on the wing. Uh, you'll see him leading the line speed a lot, makes some really good contacts. Um, and like you talk about the subtle bits of centre play, like he does the basics unbelievably well. Uh, I think that's infectious in the Leinster squad. You know, even something as simple as running a switch line, he runs it perfectly, gets back out to the outside after he takes the little pass. Um, so yeah, you'd, you'd prefer to have Robbie Henshaw there, especially going up against a team as good as Saracens, definitely just his physical strength and ability to beat tackles. But I think Nasewa is a pretty solid no, option. Like the, re the respect that all the Leinster lads have for Nasewa, um, I think one or two of them have listed him as greatest player they've ever played with, and they've played with Drake, all these guys. So I don't think there's any concerns with him, especially, as you said, defensively. Yeah. Um, whenever he puts on that Leinster jersey, he does an unbelievable job for them, whatever position. So they're kind of lucky to have a guy like him be able to slot in there. And obviously, if they decide they, they need something different, they can always move even Sexton to, to, to 12 if they need that. He's a lot of game time there and utilise Carby then from, from the bench or you never know what way it goes. So they have options. Um, and he, like, I think all the players in Leinster seem to be very versatile in terms of switching switching positions. And I think almost, I know from set play, it's you need to have a well-organised structure both in defence and attack. But as the game, break, game breaks up then, I think it becomes very fluid in terms of how backlines attack. So, um, yeah, I don't think it's a massive issue. Ideally, Henshaw would be fit, but I think they can overcome this. As someone pointed out to me on Twitter during the week, when I say was responsible for Joe Schmidt coming over, I think he was one of the first guys who put him forward as a candidate, so uh, a debt of gratitude. Out. A legend of Irish rugby, <laughs> he said the same. Anybody else? There's one down the uh, back there. Um, I think it is interesting that Ringrose is back as well because you saw how it changed the Irish attack. Um, even if you don't have a second playmaker, you have a second uh, creator with his footwork. You know, he's making line breaks, he's, he's getting uh, past a defender or two and just stressing defence into conceding a penalty. So, so I think he's a, a massive boost for him. Yeah, I, I know there's been a lot of talk uh, recently about uh, Murray and uh, Furlong being the best in their positions recently, even after now the uh, Six Nations. Do you think anybody else in the Ireland squad is the best in their position? In the world, you mean? In the world, yeah. Uh, well, Bowden Barrett's playing Super Rugby at the moment, so he's obviously not looking as good. But it, like for me, Johnny Sexton is as good a player. They're different players, obviously. And Bowden Barrett can create tries out of nothing. But I actually think Johnny Sexton is slightly underappreciated. He's, for me, he's one of the greats of Irish rugby. Um, he, just, he, does, he can do it all. You know, he's probably the best defender in the team. He's the most creative player in the team. Uh, kicking is good. Obviously, he missed a couple of place kicks. I think his uh, hamstring kind of back issue was, was uh, making him struggle. But even the fact that he was playing through that injury and still excelling, um, I'd probably have him you know, as the best out half. Obviously, Bowden Barrett's going to come back now for the All Blacks and rip it up again. So if you, if it was prove a, me wrong. If it was a World 15 and you had to pick a 10... I'd pick Sexton. Over Bowden Barrett. Would, over yeah. a peak... Bowden Barrett. Yeah, I have him on the bench, just in case. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah. Anybody else stand out? I suppose like Furlong and Murray. I mean, to have two in a team is is pretty impressive as it is. Uh, which which, which way would you lean in that sort of well nonsensical debate that we've just created between uh, Bowden Barrett and Johnny Sexton? <laughs> um, in terms of controlling a game and overall footballing ability, uh, to, to particular to attain, like Sexton's a way better kicker than Bowden Barrett in terms of. Um, spiral kick and you don't see Bowden Barrett really do a spiral kick and um, it's almost a dying art now like Raj before um, Sexton like these guys had it down to a T I guess maybe it's the style of rugby in the Northern Hemisphere um, obviously Bowden Barrett in terms of his running game is inordinately better than Sexton but um, <laughs> I'd go probably Sexton is the best 10 in the world if I had to pick a pick a halfback pair in the morning Murray and Sexton definitely that's a vote of confidence. Anybody else with a question? Quite Jesus. <laughs> the job's made a lot easier. Oh, well, uh, we'll come back to... Um, oh, there's a... Is there? No, that's a point. My apologies. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's a gentleman here. Cheers, he saved us, saved our bacon there. Could have been kind of awkward. There's been some stories recently about... Um, the Pro 14, especially in Wales and Scotland, BBC not having the rights anymore to broadcast and move towards monetization by giving it to, I think it's a pay sports channel, maybe an internet one, I'm not quite sure. Do you think the Pro 14 organization are, in their effort to monetize, are going to be losing the development of the league and its popularity, and particularly Scotland and Wales, and Wales where it's not particularly popular anyway? That's a good question. Yeah, yeah. yeah, we kind of talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Um, like you mentioned monetizing it, like the big challenges to provinces compared to the French um, and English clubs don't have any money. So I think the Welsh regions as well, the Scottish clubs, they, they, they're pushing the Pro 14 to create more TV revenue, which is really important. At the same time, they do have to find that balance. Like, and I found one of the issues with the Pro 14 is the fact that I could go weeks without watching, say, the Ospreys until they, until they play one of the provinces, you know? So there's not as much buy-in to the league as a whole. It's more kind of parochial still. Um, and that's a challenge. Like I've spoken to the Pro 14 about this, and they say, just wait until we announce everything with the TV deals. You'll see that it actually is uh, an improved offering for the fan as well. So I think they've been conscious of covering all bases. And like TG Carr keeping the rights is is really good. I know some people don't like watching Oscarilga, but they've been really Talk good. Shit. Yeah, exactly. They've been <laughs> and they've been really good at, at at being there and supporting the leagues and and putting the Connacht matches on, for example. So. Um, yeah, it is a bit of a concern, obviously, if, if you're not going to be able to watch as, as many of the, the other teams from other nations, but I think they have a bit of an idea around what to do with that. I think, yeah, TV revenues are obviously a key component and a necessary evil for professional rugby, particularly when you see, I suppose, the, the money that's created in France and even in the UK. Um, we're nowhere near that in terms of the, the, the nations here, like the, the Pro 14. So I think it's a necessary evil. You know, you need to give a bit of money to the competing teams and try and build a league that way too. Obviously, you need to keep it local as well. And TG Cahar have done a fine job. Um, them, them having access to it is, is fantastic. You know, there's issues with the GA. Like the GA can't even get it right in terms of having free to air um, games. So like every every sport has gone that way. When you see an amateur sport turning over in excess of whatever 100 million doing it then a professional body has to do it. So I think it's just the way professional sport has gone. Like we said, it's just a necessary component. Yeah, the money in France is just insane. Yeah. You know? 
the revenue they're making off, off TV and you're trying to keep up with them and obviously they're missing out on things like having local homegrown players coming through but it is scary that that's just going to keep accelerating, accelerating. Bay and Sports are in over there now as well so I think it is good that there's a bit of competition that Sky, we, we, we'll wait to see how they respond to this. They've lost quite a bit of rights and Air Sport now are a massive player in rugby so it's probably good for the sport that these rival uh, kind of companies are competing with each other a little bit more. Anyone else before we... Uh couple of gentlemen down the back here. Uh, so obviously there's been a bit of a decline recently in French rugby. Um, they've kind of came back a bit there in the Six Nations, but uh, how do you measure that up against what you said there uh, about money being put into the top 14, similar to what we've seen in previous years in football and soccer in the English Premiership? Is there a direct relation there in terms of money put negatively affecting the national team or is it a case that of recent stack out against uh, the amount of uh, minutes played top 14 against Guinness 12 or Aviva Premiership? Yeah, I think there's a direct correlation between the amount of foreigners playing in the league. Um, they're coming over, obviously, not majority of them are international players, so when they're signed by a club for a significant amount of money, they're going to be played, so it's going to get harder for the homegrown players and the, the, like the owners have so much money when there's an injury to a, a frontline player, you see the medical joker, they call it, they'll go out and sign a, another international, even if it's for three months, six months, to replace them rather than try and promote uh, a local player. Um, like the French League have actually addressed this issue and um, it's called Gief, the Gief player now, so they have to be French qualified players. I think you have to have 14 in your match day squad from, from now on, otherwise you'll be, you'll be fined or deducted points at the end of the season. So they realise that this is directly um, affecting their national team. Um, it's just getting harder and harder for local kids coming out of academies to get game time when there's internationals being signed and um, for, 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 for decent amounts of money. And like any team, if, if you bring someone in from the outside and you, you have a significant spend in them, you want to see, see that. So if there's a 50-50 call, based on a local player versus the foreign player, the foreign player will generally get, get the nod because you, you've invested the money into him. So I think it's, it's a bit like, speaking of my uh, experience in, in France, obviously I was at Montpellier and there was a massive foreign influencers. I think there was about 10 plus South Africans. There was Aussies, Kiwis, um, Islanders, Fijians. Um, I obviously a, a local paddy. Um, <laughs> so like you had a massive influx of, of foreigners and that created a bit of a divide between the local, the French lads. And, um, and then they, every year you had such a high turnover again, like you'd end up signing seven or eight players, getting rid of seven or eight players. So like the locals felt, found it hard to get an attachment and build a genuine affiliation with the team. So. And then a lot of the French-based players were actually not from the area. They were maybe from Paris or the north. So, yeah, look, you'd, you just have too many foreigners playing in the league and they are trying to address that. And that has severely affected the French team. When you say there was a divide between yourselves as imports and, well... No, just the South Africans and the... Oh, jeez. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> we we, 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 um, we kind of were in the middle trying to, trying to gel everyone Mediator. together. They, they accepted us. <laughs> <laughs> we made an effort to speak French. <laughs> Uh, gentleman down the back there. Uh, <clears throat> if you look at the current Munster squad, which player has been the most unluckiest in terms of amount of caps they've accrued when you, when you look at their natural ability? Irish caps or uh, Munster caps? Irish caps. 
Good question, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess a, a recent unlucky example, I was just talking to him the other day, is Dave Kilcoyne, uh, who was unbelievable before the Six Nations, in great form, it was great in November, um, and he was coming into Six Nations in a really good place. I, I think he probably would have featured in that first game, then he got that injury. Uh, so he's obviously been unlucky, and now he's, Jack McGrath's kind of really returned to form as well, so he's maybe slightly down the pecking order. Um, in terms of other guys, I don't know. Who, who's, who's been um, I guess... I'd go with, well, either the Scanlons. I think United Scanlon yeah. might end up starting the World Cup for Ireland. Obviously, yeah. it depends on Rory Best and if he can continue, I suppose, his to play uh, down in Japan. He'll obviously be there, thereabouts. He's the captain at the moment. But I think Niall Scanlon, if you, if you go after uh, Rory Best, I think Niall Scanlon is the best potential starting hooker for Ireland. Yeah, they seem to be kind of grooming him for yeah, that. Yeah, so obviously he had a few injuries recently and... He's not even first choice, I guess. In a Munster team, he might start this weekend. He may not. Um, no, uh, Rory has, has done extremely well, but you see the options that that Ireland have at in the centre. It's just illustrated during the Six Nations. So you can't argue with any of them being selected either. Um, obviously, Andrew Conway has been brilliant for Munster. He's a couple of caps under his name now, and he's done really well under Joe Schmidt when he's got a chance. But... The, the strength and depth of this Irish back three is, is, is crazy. So um, I'd probably go with, with the two the scannels, but um, I'd be confident that Niall will, will get a significant batch of caps in yeah. the next year. Rory was there as the 24th man a couple of, or 25th man a couple of times during the Six Nations. I'd love to just see him get the opportunity because we're never going to find out until, until he plays him at that level. You know, he, he's one of the best players for Munster consistently all the time. He has a good kicking game passing. He's strong in contact as well so he has all the tools I think but I'd love to just see him get a chance maybe in Australia I'd love to see him go on that tour and get a chance in a big test match Fair enough uh, Good question uh, From an outside I think probably Dave Kilcoyne was probably the luckiest player that in a different area would have had 80 caps as a loose head prop yeah, I yeah. yeah. Kilcoyne had, uh, like, he also underwent a sort of a training program where he, well, I think he, like, shed 5kg and that was under the, <laughs> but that was literally under the instruction of the Irish coaching that team. Was, no, that was vanity. He wanted to look good in that. <laughs> <laughs> he wanted to look good in a tight t-shirt as <laughs> well. Yeah, fair enough. But, uh, he, like, I mean, he's obviously unlucky, but then it goes back to what you were saying, where at Monster and at, at Ireland, say, 10 years ago, the options of front row were so limited. Like, yeah. as you were saying, absolutely he'd slot in, but just yeah. now the... Well, like, James Cronin probably looks at it and goes, I should have more chances yeah. at international level. I'm good enough to play at that. I should be starting Monster. So there, even at provincial level, there's that depth uh, coming through. And, yeah, we've talked about it in the front row and a tight head as well. It's, it's great to see. You're still thinking of Dave Kilcoyne without a t-shirt no. on, yeah, geez. <laughs> Anybody else? I, know, I never around? mentioned not having a t-shirt on. That's your mind. Um. <laughs> uh, anybody else before we wrap? Oh, here we go. I just wanted to touch on what you just spoke about there. They kind of preempted what I was going to say with regards um, front row players in Munster. I'm a little bit involved with the schools in Munster, and um, all of a sudden, people don't want to be second row anymore. They want to be either a hooker or a tight head or a loose head. And I just, I don't know what the reason for that is, and I'm just wondering the yield. Um, on a side note, I just want you to... Um, um, briefly go through what you think the sevens impact in Hong Kong is going to have on the 15s team. Yeah, I, I get, yeah I'll start with sevens because I actually did, did a piece with them there uh, last week. 42.8. Um, yeah, check it out, lads. Check it out. Really good article. Uh, they're, yeah, they're on the brink now. They, they win Hong Kong and they go on to the World Series. 
Um, and I think it's probably something that most of us have kind of been like, oh, whatever, they're playing sevens now. They're playing against Liechtenstein, Moldova, as they were at the start in 2015. But they've risen through the ranks really quickly. Um, I don't know if everyone's going to be convinced by sevens, and some people won't like it. But I think once they got on the circuit, once you know, you're watching them every weekend and you see how glamorous it is, how exciting it is, uh, it could explode. And certainly that's something the RFU have wanted to do. Like they pushed it so hard with the women's game as well. Um, and I think it could really take off if they win Hong Kong. It's going to be a difficult competition, even though you see the likes of Germany up against them for the trophy, you probably go, oh, they're not very good at rugby. But in terms of sevens, they, they have a bit of ability. So I'm definitely excited by it. I like sevens personally, so I'd love to see them get onto the series. No? no I, I, I actually played sevens for Ireland. Um, I was in UCC doing arts and I got a letter, a letter, Jesus, back in the day, um, <laughs> um, saying, oh, you've been selected for Ireland sevens team to tour Hong Kong, South Africa and Dubai. So I was like, happy days. And um, we did get beaten by Kenya. But, um, they're pretty good. Yeah, the they're, they're, pretty good. They're, they're all right. Um, but it was a great experience. Like, um, to go, like you said, to go to these glamorous places and like it's a different game, obviously, but you're still learning kind of how to, how to manipulate space and try and attack space. So I think it's a valuable development tool in terms of experience, especially for outside backs and a few, maybe a few back rows with a bit of speed. Um, so there's, there's like, we have enough players in Ireland who, are, who maybe aren't even with the provinces or in academies that can, that can play, yeah. play good like Billy Dardis is the captain, he's a great example. Yeah. Kind of discarded by Leinster, but to answer the other question, yeah. I think the, the answer is Todd Furla. <laughs> he's yeah. a superstar and everyone wants to be like him now. When have we had a tight head prop who's the star of the team? Such a, he's on the Late Late Show, you know? You know it's, it's, it's unbelievable <laughs> the, the, the profile he has and, and the skill he has as well. So I think he's kind of capturing young fellas' imagination. And well. obviously the front rows are very well paid now because I guess we realise they're the cornerstone of a pack. You need a strong set piece and props are, are very well looked after in terms financially. Um, they'd even be up there with um, the best play, best play players in the in the teams now. So maybe that's seeping into schools think, rugby thinking, but <laughs> I guess I'm just a bit cynical. <laughs> Possibly. An insight into Tomas O'Leary's mind. <laughs> I didn't ever went to the front, thankfully. We've time for one more. Uh, we'll just get this uh, lady at the front here. Who do you think is the next Irish captain? Hmm. Yeah. Uh, I think Peter O'Mahony. Yeah. Um, Yay! Yeah, I think... Uh, obviously, the challenge, I guess, for him is, is being in the team all the time because it's so competitive in the back row, but uh, I think he's a great leader. Uh, he has been all, all the way through. There's obviously guys like James Ryan coming through now who's going to potentially push for that position a little bit further down the line, but I think... He could be the next captain after that. Yeah, exactly. Age profile, it makes sense after the World Cup, even for a couple of years. Yeah, it's a toss-up between, between Pete and between Johnny Sexton. Um, obviously, Sexton, everyone knows, you know, he's, he's not exactly shy. He's vocal. He's yeah. demanding. He's, he is probably the leader, if not one of the leaders of this Irish is team. Is his relationship with the rest that good? <clears throat> yeah, I don't think that matters. Um, yeah. Well, like himself, well, it doesn't have to be the forwards. It does. Uh, <laughs> it does. <laughs> Sorry, Tomas. Um, it does. No. Yeah, well, obviously, I'd, I'd, I'd go with Pete, like, but I'm just putting on Joe Schmitz. Like, any, yeah. any kind of 50 50 call seems to go for a Leinster player, doesn't <laughs> it? Let's so. <laughs> run. Yeah. What time is it? Jesus. No, but he wouldn't be a bad captain, Johnny Sexton. I obviously, Pete would be a great captain, too. So, either or, we're in a good place. Yeah. Super. Well, folks, that is all we've got time for. Thanks a million for joining us. Hope you've had a good night. And uh, 
We will see you again. It won't take us as long to get down next time. I suppose while we're, while we're here, uh, in one word, Monster or Toulon? Monster. Monster. There you go. Monster or Toulon? Yourselves? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Toulon. <laughs> Cheers, guys. Thanks a million. Ciao, Thanks. 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 Thanks.